Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to let you know there's an easy way you can make a big impact. I'm on a mission to help mothers liberate themselves from internalized patriarchy and to work together toward creating a world that gives mothers what they need to thrive. In order to make the biggest impact, we need to reach as many mothers and their supporters as possible. That's where you come in. If you believe that mothers around the world can benefit from these conversations I'm having here on the podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just head over to the website, feministmompodcast.com slash support and choose the monthly contribution that feels right for you. Thanks for being in this with me. Now on to the episode. And my experience was I walked into the hospital to have a baby and go home as a family Mm -hmm. of three. And instead I woke up in a cardiothoracic ICU being told that I couldn't have any more kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had all of these really traumatic procedures and surgeries without, you know, rightfully so without my consent to save my life. But that doesn't take away Mm -hmm. that I didn't get to be there when my baby was born. And I didn't get to make any of these decisions for myself. Hello and welcome to the Feminist Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Spar. I'm a licensed therapist, feminist, and mother of two. Join me and my guests each week as we chat about what it's like mothering in today's society. We'll point out the double standards mothers face and unpack the conflicting societal messages we receive. We'll name out loud how the patriarchy and other systems of oppression impact our experiences of motherhood. This podcast is for you if you appreciate honest and smart conversations that will validate your experiences, promote discussion, and empower you to mother on your own terms. Hello, and welcome back to the Feminist Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Spar. Today on the podcast, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Kaylee Summers. Kaylee is a licensed therapist, mom, and birth trauma survivor who has a private practice located in southeastern Pennsylvania. You may know her on social media as the Birth Trauma Mama. Kaylee unfortunately suffered an amniotic fluid embolism during the birth of her son in 2019, which almost took her life. Since then, she's used her skill set as a therapist and lived experiences as a birth trauma survivor to create a supportive community for others who've experienced trauma during the perinatal period. She creates social media content and resources to help other birth trauma survivors navigate their healing. So in this episode, Kaylee and I talk about birth trauma. We talk about her experience, um, both as a mother and also as a professional. And it's quite common, unfortunately, for folks to experience birth trauma, she and I both see folks in the perinatal period, and we both see so many people coming through our doors experiencing traumatic birth. According to the National Institute of Health, up to 45% of new mothers will experience birth trauma. Think about that. Almost half of new mothers experience their birth as traumatic. So this is clearly a feminist issue. Um, When we think about uh, the patriarchy. We also see how you know patriarchy impacts our s- systems. And you think about the medical system, which um, 
can put women and marginalized genders in positions where they feel disempowered, where they feel not listened to, where they feel dehumanized, and even experience obstetric violence. Um, so this is a really big deal and big problem and something that I'm going to continue to have folks on to talk about birth itself and and how we can help make birth a more empowering and supportive experience. Um, so with that in mind, there's a lot of really great um, insights that Kaylee offers about healing from birth trauma and kind of what you can do if you've experienced birth trauma and you want to, let's say, get pregnant again and go through the birth experience again. There's a lot of great things, but she does talk about her own um, experience. So if that is maybe a hard thing to listen to, I suggest fast forwarding about, I think it's like seven or eight minutes um, through where Kaylee shares her story. Um, And then it should be a little bit easier um, through the rest of the episode. So take care of yourself and your mind. Um, But I do hope that you find something um, helpful about this episode. Okay. Now on to Kaylee Summers. Hello, welcome. I'm here today with Kaylee Summers. Um, Kaylee, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you, Erin, so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, this is really awesome. I've been following you for some time and you have a great like platform and your mission really is centering around talking about birth trauma. So I want to get into that. Um, But can you share with us just like a little bit more about who you are, your work, and, you know, like, what's the motherhood thing like for you (laughs) these days? Oh, my God, what a loaded question. I know. (laughs) Um, Especially these days. Um, Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical social worker by trade. Um, That's what I do for work. And I have done that for, I've been a licensed therapist for, now I can't remember, five years. (laughs) I'm like, when did it? Anyway, um, a while. It seems longer than that. But um, so, yeah, I got my master's in social work. And then um, that was like 10 years ago. Um, And then worked in higher ed for a while, moved on to, we were just connecting that Aaron and I are actually from, I'm not from here, but I pretend like I am. I am where Aaron grew up, basically. (laughs) And so I was, I got there because I I worked at the Hill School for a while, working with adolescents in a boarding school environment. Um, And then I got pregnant with my son and um, I just, he is amazing. Um, He was our first child. He was actually the first grandchild on both sides too. So it was a lot of like, a lot of hubbub around Mm -hmm. me being pregnant. Um, And so I had a really normal pregnancy and um, I prepared for birth, right? Like I like did the education. I was, you know, I knew my informed consent choices. I knew how to advocate. I pride myself on being someone who's not confrontational, um, but confident in mm-hmm. in myself and my body and the choices that I make for myself, my body, and my child. Um, and so I I went into the hospital for um, an induction of labor because of a few really minor complications, um, some gestational mm-hmm. hypertension. I was really concerned about how big he was. I feel like I have an opposite story. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. say like my providers are telling me my baby is really big. 
and that ends up being way off. And I felt like I was like, my baby's really big. And everyone was like, you're measuring right on track. I'm like, do you see how big my belly is? Mm. And they're like, yes. And also like everyone feels big when they're pregnant. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. But I feel really big. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so, and we do kind of like grow big babies in my family, whether that is scientifically evidence-based or not. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was a little concerned about the size. So for those reasons, we had an induction. Sure. Normal, long, slow, less than fun process. Um, And I was finally 10 centimeters, like 48 hours later. um, And... um, Mm -hmm. I turned to my nurse. My my OB had just come in and been like, yay, we're finally here. You get to meet your baby. And I turned to my nurse and I said, I'm not feeling well. And she said, that's normal for transition. I'll get you back to be sick in. I was like, nope, something is very wrong. Um, and then she went to go turn to look at my vitals and I started screaming that something was wrong with my heart. Um, and I went into cardiopulmonary arrest. Mm. Yes, unfortunately, my husband was in the room. So it was chaos. Um, a code blue was called. CPR was started. They were able to get me into the OR and get my son delivered within six minutes of the code blue, which saved his life um, and was incredible by my team. Um, and so he did really well. We were really lucky. Um, I did not do super well. Um, and so CPR had continued. It was suspected that I was having an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a very rare um, often fatal obstetric complication. Um, and so my medical team was on it. There were lots of, lots of things that needed to happen, lots of things that needed to go perfectly for me to survive that day. Um, they were able to get me on ECMO. They happened to have over 140 units of blood product in their facility. Um, they had to do a hysterectomy, um, lots and lots of, of things to save my life. Um, mm. Yeah. And so thankfully that happened. I had a long two-week ICU stay and I was able to go home after that. And it's, yeah, it it's a really heavy story. Um, and I think for a lot of people after those two weeks, it was over. Right. Right. And yeah. And not to anyone's really fault or malice. Um, a lot of people, including, you know, the 50 or so medical professionals in the OR that day were certain that I was going to die. Um, and I didn't, and not only did I not die, but like a week later I was like texting people in the ICU. So I was neurologically intact Mm -hmm. and that's like the best possible outcome for that situation. And so that's their view on it. And that is fair, right? Like they get to have that experience. And my experience was, I walked into the hospital to have a baby and go home as a family Mm. of three. And instead, I woke up in a cardiothoracic ICU being told that I couldn't have any more kids. And, Mm. you know, I had all of these really traumatic procedures and surgeries without, you know, rightfully so without my consent to save my life. But that doesn't take away Mm -hmm. that I didn't get to be there when my baby was born. I didn't get to be alive when he was born. And I didn't get to make any of these decisions for myself. Um, and so those are two very different perspectives mm-hmm. of the same experience. Mm. I just want to pause, pause there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that very 
personal story. I mean, that's like so heartbreaking to listen to. And I can see how folks might see that as like a miracle, right? As like, absolutely. In, in a lot of ways, it was, but I hear what you're saying is like, I'm sure not only you, but many people have these kinds of experiences. There is a lasting effect, um, certainly immediately after and then probably beyond that, right? That is often forgotten, minimized. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think I describe it as, you know, I thought we were going to walk off into the sunset as a family of three into this kind of like miracle storybook ending. Um, And when I got home and the opposite happened, it just felt like my world had been turned upside down. Yeah. Um, I have never felt more lonely and isolated. And I just couldn't quite understand how this had happened, how everything had fallen apart so quickly. And um, I remember being like, okay, what, what is this? Like, what has happened? And mm-hmm. I recognized that it was birth trauma, which even as, as a clinician at the time, I had not heard of before because I was not in the perinatal world. Um, and so I started doing some more research and I was like, there's got to be other people who are experiencing this. There's, there's got to be other people, unfortunately, who have gone through this. And this is the really important caveat that I always like to make is that this is when I learned that there were so many different things that could cause birth and perinatal trauma. And so if you're listening to this, like my story does not like exemplify birth trauma, right? It is, it is a complication. If these are complications that can of course cause someone to experience their birth, perceive their birth as traumatic, um, but it is not by far the the only thing that causes it. And near-death experiences and complications are just one piece of um, you know, a, a potential risk for birth trauma. And we see things like obstetric violence, we see things like lack of control, we see things like prior sexual trauma history. Like there are so many things, unfortunately, that can impact um the way that we perceive our birth and experience our birth. Um, and so that's that's when I realized, like, okay, this is not rare, the the birth trauma piece of this. And no one's really talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was back in 2019 that I mm-hmm. could see. I don't want to downplay sure. anyone who was doing amazing work at the time because I know there were people. Um, and I was like, I'm going to talk about it. Um, and so I decided to start an Instagram page in, like, early 2020, right before the pandemic, actually. and it was incredible to see all of the different experiences. And not only that, but to see that the impacts, while the mm-hmm. experiences were also different, the impacts sure. had so much crossover and were all yeah. so similar and really bringing us together in this space. Um, and that that was really a, a really powerful moment for me to, to be able to witness. Mm. Right. I mean, even as you were starting to talk about the different sort of like themes that folks feel, I mean, I think a loss of control, for example, is like such a huge, huge. Uh, part of birth trauma for most people, lots of people, right? Yeah. Um, and I hear you saying that. I mean, often folks who've experienced trauma, there's all these ways that we feel 
like we could, we have to minimize it or maybe it wasn't that bad or they may listen to your story which is very like scary and intense and i hear you being aware that folks may compare themselves and and then downplay their own and so i think that's really important that you're saying that that you know there's this isn't the like trauma like who's got it worse kind of comparison that's not helpful no. but that you know having some kind of event experience where you like really lose a sense of control um a sense of autonomy like things are happening to you that you're not feeling in, like prepared for or you're like you're not consenting to all of that is going to probably have some impact and for some folks there's like PTSD type uh responses right yeah yeah What's it been like for you to like hear these stories? Get, I mean, you just shared your story and I know you've probably talked about it many times before at this point, but you're now putting it out there and then getting these stories back. How do you hold all of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, sometimes it is difficult. I would say earlier on, it was mm-hmm. difficult. When I first started the page, um, I think it was kind of like invigorating at first, like, oh, like I'm not alone. Like this is amazing. Um, and then I think the hardest part for me is now that I can't get to all of them, mm-hmm. that I can't answer every single person that reaches out and shares their story in a DM. And that breaks my heart a little bit um, because everyone deserves for their story to be seen and heard and acknowledged. Um, And I, as one single human, can't do that. Um, But the holding holding space for other people's stories in general is my favorite part of this work. Um, And it's the reason that I, I did wait. I waited three years after my son was born to open my practice where I'm working with perinatal clients because I really wanted to make sure I was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I felt okay to be able to really hold those experiences in a therapeutic space. Um, mm-hmm. and so that, that piece was really important to me and yeah, it's just, it's really beautiful to see the impact that validation has on people who have experienced birth trauma, mm-hmm. um, and how, frustrating it is to hear how little validation people get after birth trauma. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that. So, you know, so part of the, this is talking about like the systems and the culture that, you know, birth trauma is in that setting, right? In the setting that is very, you know, medical model, you know, very sort of like, this is the, there's one way to do things. There's, you know, also kind of like you mentioned, obstetric violence, which I've been hearing more and more like reports of. So what do you think, can we talk about the cultural aspects of this? Yeah, I think the, the word that I find that best describes it in general is this idea of like paternalistic care. Um, and I think that that is what a lot of people come up against when they decide they want to have a baby and they go into obstetric care. And, um, I am pro medical intervention. 
yeah. <laughs> as mm-hmm. seen from my story. And I think what people don't understand is that you can be pro-medical intervention mm-hmm. and also be here to criticize the systems that are continuing to traumatize individuals who are giving birth. We can do both. Yes. Um, and actually, I don't see people doing both. I see this mm-hmm. wedge getting further and further apart of people who are kind of like anti-hospital, anti-medical intervention at all costs and people who are like, only medical intervention, medical intervention all the time. Like, and I have yeah. always strived to be this this middle ground, not to get us off track here, but that's. I just want it to be kind of known where I stand um, as we enter into this conversation, mm-hmm. because that is wholeheartedly where I stand. I think there is right now an issue with paternalistic care. With you know, you don't know your body best. We know your body best. Mm-hmm. We are the experts. Um, whereas I think that medical professionals are the experts on um, medical complications and how do we treat and support those who are experiencing them. And I also think that women and individuals who are giving birth are the experts on their own body. Right. Right. Like perfect example is my case. I knew I was dying before anyone else did. Yeah. Like without a doubt. Right. Because my body was telling me something really bad is happening before it showed up on any monitors or did anything at all. And mm-hmm. and we see this time and time again with people saying something is wrong and it being brushed off as anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not in my case, there was about 20 seconds in between. But in general, there is this feeling of women in healthcare being dismissed, brushed off, ignored as not knowing best as mm-hmm. being anxious, as being a first-time mom, mm-hmm. as not knowing, right, mm-hmm. being ignorant and naive. And I think that's why there's so much of this pushback to, like, take back your body, mm-hmm. take back your choices. And um, that pushback, I think, sometimes is going to the point where it's making those who aren't able to give birth without intervention because complications, medical things feel like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. So now we're in like this whole mess. Yeah. Like it's an understandable reaction. Like you're saying it's a reaction to a loss of trust. Yeah, for sure. Right? A paternalistic, you know, and like historically racist, white supremacist, right? So that's another piece I'm curious if you can talk about because even your story, the fact that all things went well, you are a white woman. Right. I have had people in my comments on like the TikToks that blow up that are like, um, if she was black, she would be dead. And people are like, that's not what this is about. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I think yeah, that's it is. fair. <laughs> it's a fair statement. Do we know the exact? Of course, we cannot guess. But what we do know are numbers and statistics. And that is kind of what they say. Right. So I am, you know, white middle class at a hospital that is in a like affluent area, like all of these things played in my favor 1000%. And we don't see that for Black women, Mm -hmm. right? We don't see that same care. And I think too, I don't know, I have to look at the research on this because I don't know if there's been research specifically on this. I'm sure there has been, but um, I would guess 
that, again, Black women are experiencing rates of birth trauma and obstetric violence at higher rates than white women. Actually, I think I did see research on obstetric violence specifically. Um, But regardless, my point being that this conversation is three and fourfold, as we've seen maternal mortality rates, for Black women, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's i am not even scratching the surface with my example of my story because this is like a rare anomaly again great point being that i did an article with buzzfeed on my story and they posted it and the comment section the way they posted it was like with a weird title it wasn't the point of it regardless news you know how it goes media outlets and so much of the comments was like, why are we talking about this? Mm. And I'm like, agreed. <laughs> like, like this is not the point of this article. It was about AFE awareness and they did not do a great job with that. Um, and so people are like, okay, so you're talking about a white woman who was saved by modern medicine. Right. What about all the black women who are dying because of yeah. racist policies in current – hospital systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So leaving the system in a lot of ways is, I think, a completely rational, understandable uh, choice to make. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of, I have a lot of empathy for that. And like you're saying, it's, that's also a shame that folks who need care feel like they can't go to. Right. The folks who maybe have resources and knowledge that, um, so I'm curious what you think about, like, what would be a non-paternalistic approach? What do you think that folks really need in kind of maybe marrying sort of the knowledge and the sort of self-knowledge? Like, the ground floor, providers that believe that we know best about our own bodies. Mm -hmm. And that they are there to help guide that they're there to help offer their knowledge to us. Like, hey, this is what I know about this particular topic. Here's the research that we know about shared decision-making. Yes. Like mm-hmm. th- partnering. This is, yeah. Like collaborative care um, and not like you need to do this or this will happen. Um, you have to do this or I'm not going to be your provider. Like we need shared decision-making. We need a provider who is – And I think sometimes trauma-informed care gets confused with being, like, nice, Mm. which, like, we love a nice doctor. Like, please be nice to us. Yes. (laughs) We love that. Um, And that is not trauma-informed care. So much of it is this collaboration, this shared decision-making, and also, like, giving the power and control to the extent that we can back to your patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, listening to their concerns and not dismissing them, even if you've seen them 12 other times and they've been anxiety related 12 other times. We don't know. And also like I, my, my thing is always like, who cares? Like, okay. So if it is anxiety, let's just, let's just talk out all of the possible reasons you could be feeling pain in your left side or whatever is happening let's talk about why there could be shortness of breath besides anxiety and including anxiety right like the, right. i mean there is yes. such a history too of like yes. w- women being sort of cast off as like 
um, neurotic, Mm -hmm. histrionic. There's a sense that we're supposed to suffer or that like somehow we should just like suck it up and and anxiety is suffering. Anxiety is like a, a problem to, yes. to help folks with. I mean, yes. that's not something to dismiss. And no. you're right. It's, it's something that's totally dismissed. Yeah. Okay. If it is anxiety, why do we think the anxiety is happening? What resources and supports do we have? Like, yeah, it's such a good point. It's not even just like, okay, well, it's just anxiety. Okay. And, and it's not just, then what? How do we yeah. support this person who's having a very real symptomology regardless of whether it is of the physical or mental variety. Right. Right. You always want to rule out physical things. And so that's important, right? We always want to rule that out. And we want to take into account actual suffering that's happening beyond beyond Band-Aids, if possible, right? Having like real support and even like we what you talked about, sort of validation and creating um, space for folks to process this like very – life-changing thing of becoming a parent, becoming a mother, like that's, um, that's, uh, it's a hard thing that we go through. And if you've never done it before, like, of course, there's going to be a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of like, what's happening here? Like, what's going to happen in birth? You know, maybe I'm empowered and excited about it, but also it's an unknown. And Mm -hmm. so we, it would be, I think Jen Hamilton always says like, it's normal for you to be scared. You've never done this before. Like totally right. understand that feeling. And we're here to support you in that and, and help you through that. And I think that doesn't happen as often as the sort of dismissal um, because right. It goes back to the idea of how we're socialized around birth and how we're socialized around birth is to just do it and be quiet about it because mm-hmm. this is your, your burden to bear your thing to suffer through. Um, And so women, individuals have suffered through it for hundreds of years. So just be quiet about it and do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm hearing like, this is a a big theme um, that I'm curious about, right? Sort of for, for many of us, we were very aware of kind of these cultural um, forces for a long time. Some of us, when becoming mothers, have really kind of opened our eyes to like the patriarchy, right? I mean, I think it would make sense that an experience like what you had would really shift, like you said, like even your worldview. I'm curious, like, you know, I ask everyone the question, are you a feminist mom? Were were you, a, did you identify as a feminist before? Did this really get you mad and charged up? What are your thoughts on that? I love that question. Um, it's such a good one. I was actually thinking about this before I came on here because I was like, I, let me reflect on my pre-birth self, which feels like I don't even know her. Um, and so I would say absolutely have always identified as a feminist to a degree. Um, but I don't think I knew really what like feminism was in the sense that I know now as a mom. So I feel like back in the day, I was like, yeah, woo, go girl. Like, <laughs> like we can do whatever we want to do. We're awesome. Um, it actually reminds me of like the, oh my God, the Mia Hamm, Michael Jordan commercial. I was like a big athlete. So do you remember that one? It was like, anything you can do, I can do better. I yes. can do anything. Okay. 
Anyway, now that I'm singing on your podcast. I love it. Please sing. Please sing. <laughs> like, like the 90s era that I grew up yeah. in was so like, you can have it all. You can do it all. Like that was my brand of girl feminism. Girl, yes, girl power, which turned into like boss babe, like energy, right? Like, yes. So I would say- a Superficial. That, I yes, have superficial yes, yes. fake empowerment. Totally. Yes. Because it was like, you can do all this, but we're not going to give you any of the support or any of the like structural- uh, infrastructure to be able to to quote unquote do it. That's a whole nother conversation. Back to what I was saying is yes, I would call myself absolutely like a superficial feminist. And because I was still very concerned with like being likable. Yeah. Right. And I felt like that made me unlikable if I was like an angry quote unquote feminist. Um and then my timeline is kind of funky when I think about, but like the whole like Donald Trump. I had my baby around that same time. I was like, fuck everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to light the world on fire. Like, this is insane. And that, again, going through birth trauma, getting kind of into this world of perinatal mood disorders, perinatal trauma, that lens, like, I don't know how you live in this world without the feminist lens um, and not that kind of superficial um, feminist lens. And, oh, I would also say very white feminist um, prior to this, like Mm -hmm. very much like, again, when you think about like, go girl, you can do it. Like we're not taking into account like structural (laughs) racism. Like we're like, everyone's equal and everyone can do it. If you just put your mind to it. Right. Yes. Yeah. If you just say a slogan like that, then it's it's a cure-all for everything. Yeah. So yes, I would say radically different. I still have a lot of work to do. I have a, a lot of um, experiences to better understand that are outside of my scope. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm constantly working to do that. But I don't think I recognized that that was something that I needed to work to do mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Living inside the bubble that I that I lived inside. I will say going to I always wanted to be a therapist. Um, once I like decided in my 20s that I wanted to do something. I, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to be a therapist. And I did decide to take the social work route because I was really interested in social justice. And that did change my lens significantly. Sure. Um, not as much as like my own experiences in birth and this sort of perinatal world, as I like to call it. But I will say the social work program that I went through um, was a, a pretty incredible turning point for someone who grew up in a pretty homogenous environment, um, not exposed to like a ton of diversity, went to a Catholic high school, mm-hmm. went to St. Joe's, which is a, a Catholic university in Philly. Like yeah. there wasn't a, a whole lot uh, happening there. And so I had a really important culture shock. Uh, when I went to grad school, and that only scratched the surface um, of of what I still needed to learn and experience in order to have this really big perspective and lens shift, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, did you feel like after your birth trauma that you like felt uh, that you were oppressed or that you were feeling the oppression of mothers in some way like from from that experience like how yeah how do you sort of think about that yes 
what is it about that experience that okay because I sort of I'm really interested in exploring that what is it about our experiences transitioning to mothers that makes us so like angry <laughs> and <laughs> especially as I think as you and I are white women so I think like we can like you said maybe avoid feeling oppressed maybe we feel scared walking down the street at night alone maybe we worry about yeah like sexual assault and violence and maybe we criticize our bodies so there there's like awareness of that there's something going on that's harder for for girls but i think we can avoid feeling oppression we go to school if you're smart and have financial privilege you can be what you want to be in a lot of ways but becoming a mother it's like you find yourself feeling invisible, feeling the world isn't actually made for you. Mm-hmm. And that can be a culture shock, I think, for privileged white women. <laughs> yes. And I, here's here's the biggest culture shock that I see for myself and for people who walk into my therapy room weekly, for especially for white women. We have been taught and have seen the equation our entire lives. We want something, we work hard, we get it. Yeah. Because we have this massive head start, right? Mm-hmm. So we work really hard for the one, like our goal, and then we get our goal. That's what you do. And you just have to work hard. That's what we're taught our whole lives. And so what happens is we say, okay, I want this birth. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna work really hard. I'm gonna do all of the education. And then I'm gonna, oh shit, I don't have control over this. And then your whole world gets messed up. Because mm-hmm. your world order is, there's a goal, I work really hard, yeah. I get it. And mm-hmm. that also just gets messed up in parenting too, right? Like we can't we can't um, quantify parenting in that way. Mm-hmm. And we can't quantify postpartum, which this part was really hard for me, yeah. physically recovering. I couldn't take care of my child for a while. But eventually when I was able mm-hmm. to, like when he was like two months old, my husband went back to work. I will never forget those days. And I know they are not unique to me and they are not unique to birth trauma. Those are just kind of other layers. But I just remember sitting there with him crying in my arms and being like, what did I do? Mm -hmm. And feeling like I just like don't know what I got myself into. That is this what motherhood is, is going to feel like? Like is this that that transition, especially when there's trauma involved, it now feels like this is how I'm always gonna feel. Yeah. It feels like, like forever. Terrifying. Yeah. And so to back back all the way back to your question about feeling like what makes us feel so angry. Um, that feeling of kind of like no control. But then also when I came out of this experience, um I got a lot of like, wow, you must just be so grateful that you're alive. Oh, wow. You must just be so grateful. What a miracle. Wow. This is amazing. This is like the best. And like, yeah, to a certain extent it is. Um, But also it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Mm. And to feel so invisible when you feel like you had the worst experience of your life. Like, Literally, I died on an OR table when my child was born. And all anyone could say to me, not people close to me, but more like acquaintances, was, wow, you must be so grateful. And it's like the bar is being dead. Like that feels – that. and again, I am beyond grateful. I 
cry weekly when I am like watching my son play outside and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we both get to be here. Like I get it. I am grateful. But I needed at that time space to feel like this was awful and unfair. Yeah. And I society was like, nah, we don't you don't get to do that because you're not dead. And mm-hmm. I remember just feeling really alone with that. And I remember giving myself a really hard time for mm. being angry and sad. Like, how yeah. dare you be angry and sad when you could be dead? Um, and so that was really hard for me to climb out of. Um, and I definitely dealt with some postpartum depression related to that. Um, and I, again, feel like I come from a lot of privilege, even in my level of support. Mm-hmm. So I had an experience where now I have a medical team that was equally traumatized. So they're like in touch with me. They're checking on me like mm-hmm. daily and weekly. And like, how are you? I'm going to go see them at the hospital. They're like, you are amazing. Like I have all of this constant validation for how traumatic my experience was. My whole family is traumatized, which was like hard, but also like my worst day was also one of their worst days. So that's validation. There's a bond. There's a connection in that experience. Yes. And the reason I'm talking about this is because there are so many other people out there who even have similar experiences as me and get zilch, zero, none, and are said, get over it on a daily basis by people that they love and people that they care about. And when I tell you that that is sometimes actually worse than the trauma itself. Oh, I believe you. mm -hmm. And that's where I think the societal pressure for moms comes in, right? Like that. And I think I would have been a million times angrier. So if you're out there and you feel a million times angrier than I'm describing myself, that is valid Mm -hmm. because I was constantly getting the validation and I still felt angry. Society says, like, pull yourself up. You're a mom now. Your needs don't matter. You Mm -hmm. only mattered when you were an incubator for the baby. And now the baby's out. So get it together. Yeah. Yeah. Even what you said about, like, sometimes the worst part is the reaction to the trauma. We know that that's that's true. That's real. That there's, like, research that shows that folks – do better, feel better, heal quicker or whatever when they have a supportive understanding support system, right? Often even any kind of trauma, you know, if you've gone through child abuse or any, you know, sexual abuse, things like that, you, if people minimize and blame you for it, it's a lot harder to recover than folks saying, yeah, that wasn't okay. Right. And so I bet you do a lot of, and I know in my own work with folks who've had birth trauma, doing a lot of like, that wasn't okay. What happened to you? And just being able to match like the, the appropriate emotion that they're feeling. What, what makes sense when you're right? The culture, we can't tolerate that as a society. We can't sit in grief. I mean, so much of my podcast, every episode is going to touch on grief because we don't know how to do that. And I think. Yeah, well-meaning folks, we can't. We don't know how. We haven't been taught that. So all we know to do is offer these like toxic positivity kinds of things, and there's, that's built in. I mean, religious organizations too. There can be a lot of that. That are cultures, cultural stuff here about how we talk about tragedy and things like that. So yeah, I just want to validate that that that's maddening. <laughs> to, 
it it truly is. And it's why I think sometimes it's even harder for people to recover who have more like insidious trauma, which is often obstetric violence. Um, This is anecdotal, totally anecdotal. But what I experience and see as both someone who runs a space like this and as a clinician in this is that the people who experience obstetric violence are often so dismissed and so invalidated and so gaslit about their experience. Mm -hmm. I don't love that word, but it really fits there. Um, It just makes it so much harder to recover. Um, and I'm glad we're talking about it more, but yet these, these sort of single incidents where you're like a one-on-one conversation with someone and they say like, oh, well, that's just like birth, right? Mm. Like, that's just like what happens. You just, you know, lose all of your dignity and are ignored and dismissed. Like, no, that's not what birth looks like. That's not what birth should look like. And this person is experiencing that and that is potentially traumatizing for them. And so, again, I just think there's such a um, such power in validation. And I speak to a lot of um, nurses and OBs about mm. um, how they respond to patients, specifically after severe maternal events. And I'm like, I'm not asking you to be their therapist. You don't have to be their mm. therapist. But if you literally just say, like, that was so much and it must have been terrifying for you to go through. Yeah. Magic. Yes. It literally, I, I was like shouting the other day at a, at a conference I was talking. I was like, it literally changes outcomes. I'm not saying you're going to like untraumatize someone, but the amount of people that come into my office and say, this was horrific, this was awful, but there was that one nurse. Oh, totally. There was that one provider who just told me they, like, I, th- I knew they understood and I felt so seen and heard by them. Yes. Or like just told the truth. Right. And I think it's, it's tricky because I think in medical settings, folks are so worried about liability and they're trying to walk, right. Like cover their themselves. And what the most healing thing, the most actual is even saying like, we made a mistake that shouldn't have happened. We, we will talk about how, like, let's talk through what happened, what should have been different. I want to hear your experience. Like, folks should have a debriefing session with, like, multiple people, like, yes. if they want that, right, to process it. But instead, it's, like, often I find clients, ha- like, try to find a new OB and try to get someone else, like, if they're to validate the experience that they had. but not the because it, it part of what you're trying to recover and you could speak to this better than I can probably is like one like your sense of self trust like can I trust myself mm-hmm. right can I trust my body again can I trust you know did I was I was this my fault often mm-hmm. like yes. am I, did I perceive this correctly so having people especially who are there or you know or who are knowledgeable say like this wasn't okay this wasn't your fault this was a huge you know, violation, you know, that really can help you just kind of make sense of what you're, what happened and put things together in your own mind so you can trust yourself again. Is that? Yeah. No, it's, with your experience? It's, yes. And, and I think the, the part that's hardest about this and the part that, and I work with a lot of clients who are looking for validation is I unfortunately have to be the one to prepare them, that they're going to be very unlikely to get the validation they're looking yeah. for from the provider that caused the trauma. 
And if that's what that, like, we have to do a whole kind of like, what are you, what are you thinking you're going to get out of this? Like, let's talk about your goals because that can be further traumatizing to walk in and expect an apology or expect this validation that that doesn't come. Um, But yeah, it, it would. And to your point, yeah, providers are probably never going to say mistake or sorry because of that legal concern. Um, but there are so many other ways to validate. And the research says that people who are more validating and empathetic and actually do apologize are less likely to have a suit filed against them. That's what the research says. But hmm. regardless... There is, again, when I do these presentations, I avoid the word sorry or mistake, and you can still be so incredibly validating to a patient and their experience Um, because so much is missed communications, so much is a patient not knowing what's happening, even though – because you've assumed that they know what's happening, Um, but they either didn't hear or they are terrified – and so there's so many things that can can be changed in that environment to at least mitigate potential trauma. Mm. Well, I mean, you're so knowledgeable in this. I'm I'm wondering if folks are listening. Like a part, it's like very stressful. Like if you're maybe a prospective parent, you haven't gone through this yet, and you're scared of it of of having a, a traumatic birth. If you've had a traumatic birth and you're scared to get pregnant again, like I know you know, there's all of these different ways this can all be very scary. I'm wondering um, if there's things that you that you tell folks that like it helps them to feel like even though we don't have control of everything, that's true. And sometimes that's there's like grieving that sense yes, of yeah, I thought I had control. Right. So, but what other things do you think maybe you'd like to offer folks who are feeling worried or? Stressed. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. You're feeling worried. Of course, you're feeling stressed. Especially if you just listen to this podcast. Sorry, <laughs> I always say that. I'm like, I'm sorry. I like do want to raise awareness, but also, oh, it can feel so overwhelming. But the really cool part is that like there are so many beautiful, wonderful births that happen out there too. Um, and that's of course always our goal. But I like to say that I also know several people. If we're talking about subsequent births, who have had subsequent birth experiences on paper that appear traumatic Mm -hmm. and for them have been healing yeah, because of the preparation and support that we have worked to gain heading into that birth to help them feel like they actually do have a voice and control. I'm putting that in quotes um, because, you know, we can't control everything, but their own sort of control to voice their opinion, to advocate for what their needs are. And no matter the outcome, they still feel like they were heard Mm -hmm. and like they were, again, in charge of sort of the scenario or room. And so things that we talk about are providers, right, is is provider interviews. Like I'm telling people to who are looking for a new provider, like you call and you ask to sit down and have a conversation with a provider. If they say, no, we don't do that, that's not the right provider for you. They're literally going to be delivering a human out of you. You deserve the chance to speak to them before deciding if you want to choose their care. Yeah. Um, And so I am always encouraging people to go interview a few providers in their area if they have that option. I know people who are in more rural communities, unfortunately, don't always have that option. Um, I also am a big fan of like appealing to humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, So by that, I mean, I like to set providers up to be trauma-informed 
-hmm. when I kind of like, like, I know they probably are already trying, but like to go into, I'll give an example because this sounds confusing. Um, but I think most providers, I really do think most providers mean well. Does that mean they're always giving trauma-informed treatment and like doing a wonderful job? Not always. We're all human. But if you can sort of prime your conversation with your provider by saying like, hey, look, I had a really traumatic past birth. I really need a provider who understands that, does not dismiss my concerns, does not ignore me, and who works together with me as the expert on my body. And then I come to you because you're the expert on medical knowledge and I want your help. And I want your collaboration, but I also want you to respect and honor the fact that I know my body best. Mm-hmm. And like, what are they, if they're like, mm, like, what, what is their response? If their response is crappy, that is not the provider for you. But if their response is good, you've also laid the groundwork, right? Yes. For trauma-informed care and exactly what you're looking for. I am also a big fan of re- reserving your right to leave a provider at any time. Hmm. It's not always easy, but I have had people leave at like 25, 27 weeks, and it was the best decision that they ever mm-hmm. made because they got mm-hmm. red flags. They got all kinds of feelings that were not good. And instead of trying to stick it out, they changed providers and that was almost always a very good option. Yes. I've seen folks do that too, even later. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about doulas? Like, do Oh you- my God. Give me all the doulas. Yes. I'm always okay. like, please. Okay. <laughs> Here's okay. Here's what I'll say about doulas. I love doulas, and I can't believe that I ever thought they were like odd or weird. Like back in the day, like when I was, yeah. deli- I, w- I didn't think they were odd when I was delivering my son, but I was kind of like, I don't need one. My husband is, oh, my <laughs> husband is lovely, lovely human. Love him, but like mm, not equipped. Forty-eight <laughs> hours of induction labor to the point where actually, when I was getting ready to deliver, he's like, my mom and I are very close, but. I wanted, I was like, well, we can just have it be us for like my husband's sake. And he was like, Kaylee, um, can we invite your mom in for the delivery? I just don't think I can handle it by myself. <laughs> You've been in so much pain for 48 hours. I need backup. <laughs> like, so anyway, back to the doula conversation. Doula, yes, 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 yes. Um, highly recommend. I think they're wonderful. I think they've maybe felt, I've talked to a few doulas who have felt a little bit of pressure that Mm. like all this research is coming out saying that they lower the risk of this and they lower the risk of that. And that's why we love doulas. They cannot like in and of themselves prevent a traumatic birth. Right. So we need to recognize that. Um, We need to interview doulas with the understanding that they know your background Um, and by that, I mean like your choices might look different if you've had a prior traumatic birth, Mm -hmm. you might not be interested in a VBAC because Mm -hmm. you're very nervous about that. And that's just, you want to be able to have a scheduled, calm, hopefully C-section and you want a doula who respects that and isn't trying to convince you otherwise. Right. Yes. Um, so all four doulas with also knowing that just like, Hiring a doula doesn't make your birth not traumatic. Right, right. I think that that makes sense. Right. It's it's um an informed support person who like Amazing. can help communicate and explain things and prepare you. But yeah, managing the expectations of what they can they can have control of too is yeah. um important. I also think doulas can be extremely helpful for subsequent uh, pregnancies after a traumatic birth because they have they have like meetings up through mm-hmm. like before you give birth where you're planning and talking about these things and I've worked with a lot of clients who are simultaneously working with doulas and it's really great because they can take some of the stuff that we talk about 
into with their doulas to talk about like the logistics mm-hmm. um, of what they're looking for. And we can kind of combine that support to make them feel like really, again, supported going into a subsequent birth. Um, and also just if you're going into a subsequent birth after birth trauma, it's okay to feel scared and worried. We're not going to be able to make that totally go away because you're asking your nervous system to go back into the same environment or similar environment where a previous trauma occurred. So there's always going to be some anxiety and nerves. That is normal. Wonderful. And and sometimes it can be healing and sometimes it isn't, right? Again, um, it can be very different. And that's that's what I've observed as well. So Yeah. And even when it is healing, it brings up a lot of feelings. Yes. Right. Of like I think that surprises people when they have a really healing experience and yet all that grief and stuff comes yeah. up from what they didn't get in their prior birth experience. Sure. So much, so much to grieve, so many feelings to process. This was so, so helpful. I mean, you are such a wealth of information and I know like this is a concern for, for folks as we're talking more about it. There's also more anxiety. That's, it's such an interesting um, cultural thing that we're having too right now. It's like nobody talked about anything. Suddenly we're, we were trying to tell the truth. And then there's like a response of like, ah, I'm scared. Stop telling the truth. So I think we're all still trying to figure out how to talk about this stuff. What's too much information? What's not enough information? But I think honest information is kind of always, always helpful. Yeah, for sure. There's a pendulum swing that happens, unfortunately. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, Can you tell us all where we can find you? Yeah, of course. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok at the birth trauma underscore mama. Um, I also have a website, thebirthtraumamama.com and my podcast, which is the birth trauma mama. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kaylee. I really appreciate your time. Of course, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. That's the show. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Feminist Mom Podcast. Thank you to my guest, Kaylee Summers. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe, leave me a review. Those five-star reviews really help to get more folks to see the podcast and help to bring these conversations to more moms. You can also help support the podcast by becoming a paid supporter. Donate just a few dollars a month to help me bring these conversations to moms worldwide. You can find me on Instagram at feminist.mom.therapist or on the podcast website, feministmompodcast.com. Until next time.